When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music is Not a Genre's Back Talk. It's a new series. We started uh, last season, and we're continuing here in season six. Uh, still kind of feeling out what it all means, but generally back talk is uh, me and some other esteemed guest talking at length about a music subject. And this back talk is, well, the title is called Round Two, A Second Look at First Albums. And I'll explain that in a second, but first... I want to uh, say hi to our guest today, Steve Erickson. How are you? Uh, pretty good. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Been been busy. Been crazy. But I'm I'm excited that we could take the time out to do this because I think it's a it's kind of a cool topic. So let me explain to everyone what exactly we're doing here. So so round two, a second look at first albums. What that means is I had this idea that I passed on to Steve and 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 you you know really helped flesh it out, which is Often, once an artist is famous, we aren't quite sure how to look at their first few albums, their first albums, one, two, three, whatever it is, prior either to their being famous or to them shifting to the sound that they would be known for. So what we're doing in this episode, in this talk, is you know handpicking some artists that we are familiar with or somewhat familiar with, digging into them and discussing the merits of you know were their earlier albums good or if if the and if they were good why were they good in a different way from their later work and i've kind of got a few categories here that will help the audience at least kind of put things together in their mind before we jump into just our general discussion which will go wherever it goes i think and i have a couple here that you know if you please do comment on and that is, I find that those first few albums or first album usually fall into a, a couple of different types, one of three types. One would be more commercial and less personal than their later work. Some examples of people that we might talk about later on would be Eminem. Uh, Eminem's first album was deliberately meant to be more commercial. Tori Amos's first album you just mentioned, right, was more kind of pop. Very 80s sounding pop. I also would put in there, it's someone I'm more familiar with, which is Matthew Sweet. The, uh, his first, I think, three albums sounded very developmental to me. They sounded like 
an artist trying to figure out what they wanted to do with the talent they had and really not being sure. And fortunately, having the support of a record company, which at the time was not an unusual thing, became much more unusual after that. And I think that I put uh, him in the same category as someone like a Tori Amos, who was going for more kind of straight ahead 80s pop, really. Um, That's interesting. I've actually never heard those first two Matthew Sweet albums. When Girlfriend came out, I knew it wasn't literally his first album, but he was basically a new artist to me. And that's exactly what we're going for here. That's what that's what's so exciting about this is we think of some someone like a Matthew Sweet or even let's go with someone bigger than that, like a a Fleetwood Mac whose story is long and complicated. But we know them for their big hits. And and if that's all we know and that's fine, but we may we we may not realize that they started somewhere else and their first big break wasn't the first thing they did. And the things they did before that might not even sound like what they're known for. Yeah. uh, The one funny thing about Fleetwood Mac, their first album is called Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. I I think that's because they released uh, two self-titled albums, but that really shows the difference between them. The second self-titled album was the first one where Buckingham and Nick's joined. And it doesn't sound anything remotely similar. I remember that I listened to their catalog a couple of years ago and I had known they kind of started somewhere else, but didn't really know where. And I didn't know the history of Buckingham Knicks and all of that. And then that first album is it's just it's like heavily blues rock is really all it is. Yeah. Very Peter Green, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's where they started out. And then when Peter Green and Jeremy Spencer both left pretty quickly, and Bob Welch and Christine McVie joined and kind of became the dominating voices around 1971, the run-up to Buckingham and Nick's joining. Those albums actually rock a lot harder than people who've only heard rumors would ever think Fleetwood Mac could. They're not quite as blues-oriented, but they really have a punch that you wouldn't expect if, if Go Your Own Way and Dreams are the only Fleetwood Mac songs you've heard. And that's something that's always fascinated me, understanding that where an artist ended up might have some elements of where they began, but then you might go back and listen to their first albums and and be like, that doesn't sound like them at all. And I think at that time in history, there were a lot of bands whose impetus for starting out was really the blues rock milieu. I mean, you had you had Fleetwood Mac Jethro Tull before they were progressive were basically just blues rock Black Sabbath before they recorded anything. But prior to that were a blues rock band and and ones that went on to more well-known blues rock stuff like Led Zeppelin and, and all of that. So much of that was happening at the time. And then each one decided, well, no, we like that, but we're going to turn it into something else. And that's how they kind of got their individual sound. Uh, yeah. I mean, even the early Fleetwood Mac the Beatles cited Albatross, which is an instrumental off their first album, as an influence on Abbey Road. So even in 1968, people were already listening intently to Fleetwood Mac. But yeah, the first two albums are basically blues rock, and you would you barely hear any trace of that in their you know their late 70s and early 80s music. Yeah, and I guess I'll ask. Just this is—I mean, this can only really be opinion in my in my estimation. But knowing what you know about their, just as an example, the early Fleetwood Mac albums, do you find that they're worthy of a of a listen on their own, or as much as their later work, or in any context? 
Uh, absolutely. I haven't listened to the very early ones very much. I don't think I've listened to them enough to really be able to judge them. But I have the box set 1969 to 1974. And there's one album there that I think is as good as Rumors and Tusk. I think it's called Heroes Are Hard to Find. There are maybe two or three albums there that I think are close to greatness. They released so much music during that period that I have a hard time remembering which specific albums. <laughs> they got there pretty quickly. I mean, Peter Green had a really distinctive sound as a guitar player. His solo album, End of the Road, which I think he, he recorded in 1970, right after he quit, is quite good. But again, if for people who've never heard, I don't know if there's a good compilation of the late 60s and early 70s, Fleetwood Mac. Obviously, I'm not... I'm not going to recommend a box set, but there's some great music in there. Yeah, I would agree. And I think we'll find that for a lot of artists that we're talking about today is that they're worth a re-listen. They're worth a revisit. This second, and I'm only throwing these out because they're good points of interest and, and places to jump from. This second idea that I have of what type of album some artists' first albums or second albums could be is so that first we kind of got on our tangent, but we were talking about albums that were deliberately more commercial. Well, what about albums that were deliberately less commercial? Let's think of bands, artists who didn't think that they really had any legs on their career. And they were like, well, I'm just doing this because I want to do this. I'm, I'm exploring and experimenting and kind of messing around. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm doing the thing that kind of is the most fun for me and really almost deliberately trying not to be commercial, but trying to be more experimental. And the two that came to mind here of ones I know, and I know there are dozens more, hundreds more, would be a band that we will be talking about at more length, which is Pink Floyd. And the idea of how you describe their first couple of albums, and especially what you said about The Saucer Full of Secrets, reminded me of how I felt when I listened through to uh, Beck's catalog and the two indie albums that he put out before Mellow Gold, which are not easy to listen through. And I think that's deliberate. It's it's as if he was trying to be obtuse. He was trying to be, you know, ridiculous and experimental and kind of let the sand fly everywhere in the sandbox before deciding or landing on ideas that he would then carry through more cogently through the rest of his career. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In a similar way to how there was a flightiness and different elements, but kind of a pastiche of the way that Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd put music together that would then later on cohere into a more signature sound of theirs. Uh, yeah, although with early Pink Floyd, I should say they were far more popular in England than they were in, in America. Their first album, I think, they got treated badly by their label at first, like the original American version of Piper, The Gates of Dawn, left three songs off. So it it was easier in Britain. I, I think there's also just often tendency for British bands to be more popular in Britain for obvious reasons. Yeah, so something like See Emily Play was a hit in England. Maybe it could have become a hit in America in 67 if it had gotten actual promotion. But to pick a, another psychedelic band from that time, The Grateful Dead, that until Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, their early albums sound like they're not, they don't have any actual songs, and often they're just sticking around in the studio. Around 1970, they've said they were inspired by the band to go towards a more country-oriented sound, but also write, you know, write songs rather than, than jam sessions. And again, that seems like that was a trend in sort of the mid-late 66, 67, moving on was that kind of influence of the San Francisco scene and, and psychedelics to be almost ridiculously experimental in a deliberate way. That's not not even meant as a judgment, just how wild and out there can we get? And when I interviewed the guy who uh, wrote uh, the book on the mamas and the papas, and, and in that book, they were talking about Monterey Pop and the difficulty John Phillips and his people had of trying to figure out which bands from that scene would be worth putting up on a festival stage when there was a lot of local popularity because of the scene, but the music itself was just so unformed and experimental that it would be difficult to get across in a larger venue or to a larger audience. And that sort of seems like what's happened with bands we're talking about here is that idea of, well, they were doing things that moved them. But then at some point they realized for one reason or another, whether it was because they wanted a longer career or they were getting bored of not having something cohesive to shift into, like you said, Working Man's Dead, more coherent songs. Or you mentioned a song on the saucer full of secrets that I, I listened through a little bit, which was, I think it was like 11 or 12 minutes of, and, and you said it was kind of just like album filler. Yeah. I mean, that song in particular really has the sixties, like let's get stoned and jam for 10 minutes quality. The reason the song exists is that they needed to fill out the album and they didn't have three, three minute songs. 
So they had to come up with, you know, a 10 minute one. <laughs> I'm the Stooges' first album, We Will Fall, which sounds nothing like any other song they released, came about the same way. That's nine minutes long. The reason it's so long is that they only had about 20 minutes worth of songs and need to pad out. I would also point to some kind of contemporary indie artists like Eve Toomer, who I think is one of the most exciting rock musicians out now, or U.S. Girls. Toomer started off making Vaporwave under a different name around 2010. Then he made sort of experimental electronic music. One of their biggest songs on Spotify is an ambient instrumental, which is nothing like the music they're doing now. They signed to a larger label, Warp Records, and uh, you can tell that they were trying to reach a bigger audience. Their past three projects they've done have been very glam-influenced, with a lot of Bowie and Prince. But even on the first album for Warp, there's a song which is like, how to describe it, like, it sounds like a harrowing cry of pain. Tumor themselves says they find the song terrifying to listen to. Wow. That's incredible. I love that you bring up that there are contemporary artists who are doing the same thing. And, and in a way, I think, I mean, it's it's happened throughout history, but I think there was a period in history, in particular the 90s and, and the early kind of mid 2000s, where record companies started clamping down on who they would accept as artists and artist development deals kind of disappeared. And so an artist had to kind of come out of the gate with something that made sense to the label and to a larger audience. But then when the internet age started to creep up and you have people recording anything and everything they want everywhere they want and in any way, you're getting back to a point where people can have the freedom to be more experimental and not decide right away what it is they want to do with those experiments. Well, I think also there's a much different attitude about genre. For instance, I think there are artists who are probably enthusiastic about all the music they're making at various points of their career. But you couldn't say, for instance, with Ministry, Al Jorgensen couldn't say, I like synth pop and industrial metal equally. I want to play both of them. By the time Ministry switched to being an industrial band in the late 80s, around that time, he kept saying he hated his first album. And I've heard that may not actually be true. Or, for instance, bands who are rooted in hair metal, like Pantera and Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains never actually re recorded beyond the demo stage of that period. But Pantera released four albums on their own label as a hair metal band. And then when they signed, they're like, we're the cowboys from hell. <laughs> they completely changed their image. And I think there's probably, like if the first album had been a hit, they never would have gotten heavier, you know? But at the same time, you couldn't say in the 90s, if you were a metal band, oh, you know, I love Slayer and, and Bon Jovi equally. Yeah, those are great examples. Alice in Chains and Pantera doing hair metal at a time when they saw the you know industry shifting. And like you said, they didn't have huge hits out of the, anything they had done prior to that. So they made the shift, which we know is fine. And we've seen artists do that. It's almost a requirement for well-known artists these days to put out an album or two albums where they're shifting into something else. You see that with even pop artists like Miley Cyrus or Pink will change styles every couple of albums. And we're accepting that because, like you said, there's a different attitude about genre. I always feel like there's a reason why the words genre and, and gender come from the same root word in, this, in the sense that when we so rigidly categorize things, we cut off the fluidity of, of what the reality of that is. So 
so now as we are looking at gender as more fluid, we're looking at genres as more fluid and we're more, we meaning people who at least aren't, you know, assholes, we, you know, we are more accepting of the idea and even in, in many ways excited about the idea that there don't need to be these rigid categories. Whereas back then, like you said, Al Jorgensen probably secretly was like, yeah, I kind of really like that, you know, first sound. It didn't fly and we shifted. But if I didn't disavow it, then the hardcore people who only saw me as this one thing would think I was ridiculous and it would have hurt his career or seemingly would have hurt his career. And I mean, I'm honestly happier that we're here now than we were 30 years ago. You know, yeah. Although one thing, I think this is much more true for pop and indie rock. In punk and metal, it's still very common for a band to have one sound that they play over and over for their entire career. But yeah, Miley Cyrus, I think, has changed her sound with every album she's made. Although, to be honest, she doesn't seem very passionate about any of it. I thought her best album was the one that came started like Joan Jett and Pat Benatar. That was the one that came out before last. But there's something, there can be a kind of phoniness where it can come off like you're just trying whatever you think will sell without having that much personal conviction in any particular. Like, I get a lot of music out of the blue where the press release is like, oh, this is a mix of pop, R&B, rock. Then you listen to it and it just sounds like Phoebe Bridgers mixed with Lord, mixed with Billie Eilish. <laughs> it's like a combination of recent music. Yeah. Kind of falls between genre cracks and that itself has become a new genre. Falling between the cracks. The thing is, it's not actually falling between the cracks. It's a new kind of pop music that's maybe more indie. We've reached a point where you get a lot of kind of bad imitators of, I, I think we're getting way off the topic at this point. No, that's fine. I, I want I want to make two comments on that and then we'll get back to the topic. And that is that I find that this kind of music you're talking about is almost the new kind of, you know, middle of the road music or MOR, whatever you, whatever, however you, you want to call it. But that the other point, which I think is closer to topic is that people like Miley Cyrus or I don't know, Demi Lovato or other people who are very passionate about the music they do. I think they choose to do that music because they want to. And they, if they're already selling, they don't care as much about how much it sells. But what they do with that music, to me, it's like they're putting on a costume. It's like they're putting on the clothes of that music. But the soul of it being like really embodying it, I rarely feel that from these kind of dilettante pop artists who just jump from one genre to another. Yeah, I think Olivia Rodrigo is actually pretty good at rock, and she went much further in that direction on her second album, but she's also extremely good at piano ballads. She's far more convincing as a rocker than Demi Lovato is. I agree, and I feel it more. And listen, I think Demi Lovato's voice is one of the strongest voices in pop and, uh, and has been for a while, but that's a different distinction than where does the music come from? And you know, I'm always slightly skeptical about, you know, new artists who are trying on old sounds, because even though there's a part of me that feels excited, like, oh, that sounds coming back. It's something I used to like, you know, I'm wary that they're doing it in a way that doesn't feel organic. And I will agree that much of what I've heard from Olivia Rodrigo sounds organic. Uh, yeah, I think Lovato now has made two rock albums in a row. I think switching styles to that actually really tanked her popularity. So I think she does, she really is making music that she cares about. 
My problems with those albums are more about overproduction. Although she has a great voice, it's maybe suited better to softer music. Like, her ballad Sober is the best thing I've heard by her. It's very stripped down. She's not she's not competing with loud guitars. I remember, I think I remember that from that album. Yeah, it and that's again, that's a whole other topic as to what, you know, what fits an, an artist best. I think I just want to say one more thing about this that to me, and I brought this artist up before, but the kind of British counterpart of Olivia Rodrigo for me has been Bia Badubi in that she started more pop and moved into kind of a, a rock sound or in a grungier sound and all of that. And I, for the most part, do not find her her songs overproduced. I find that she seems to live in the music that she's doing and, and in a similar way to Rodrigo. Yeah, you know, I've liked what I've heard by her, but I've only heard maybe three or four songs. So I can't really offer a particularly informed opinion on her. Yeah, I you know, and I I haven't heard everything, but I've heard the last couple of uh, the I think an album and an EP I want to say, and yeah, I was I was pretty impressed. But let's get back so to you know we're 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 wandering right back to the topic here, and we're also coming up on a point where we might need to take a break. But before we get there, I wanted to bring up this third point that I have listed here, which I think actually ties right into what we're talking about, which is what an artist really wants to be. And so we've we've talked some about artists who start out deliberately more commercial. And now we can even put in, you know, like you said, a Pantera or Alice in Chains in that category, because at the time, hair metal was very commercial. We talk about artists who are less commercial, like the Grateful Dead and all the psychedelic bands and Pink Floyd and and Beck. And there's another category that is almost more mysterious to me because the first two you can kind of understand, which is artists who are already self-actualizing from the very beginning. They have a very clear sense of what they want to do. They might not fully be there yet. They're going to, you know, develop into something that's more fully realized. But from the beginning, there have been artists who just knew this is what I want to do with music. This is where I want to go. I may add a few things here and there later on as I develop. And even though maybe it took them three, four albums or whatever to hit the the big time and to to gain our attention and, and all of the fame that they had later on, you can go back and listen to those albums and hear many of the elements that they would carry through their career and the seeds of all of the rest of it. And we certainly can't jump into this conversation right yet, but I want to kind of preface it before we take a break, which is Prince. Yeah, particularly the leap from his first album to his second album to Dirty Mind. You can hear him taking a level up with each album. He started off quite good. I think Prince, the his self-titled second album, is kind of underrated. It's kind of lived in the shadow of his 80s work. But it's, I think to me, it's as good as Controversy or Parade or Love Sexy, which I don't think are his best albums. But even his first album, For You, has a number of songs that I'd put on a, on a Prince Deep Cuts playlist. From the get-go, I think he was really good at kind of slow jam R&B. The songs on his first album that depart from that are a bit overproduced and kind of uncertain. He blew his recording budget by three times on the first album. He spent, in contemporary money, he spent $750,000 producing it. That was the first time he'd been in the studio beyond making very cursory, you know, demos. He was 19 at the time, and all of a sudden, he had hundreds of thousands of dollars to play with, and he was the producer as well. I want to get more deeply into Prince, uh, and there are a couple of reasons why, but first, we're going to take a quick break. And we will be right back. 
Hey, so I was going to do the usual and just list all of the links that I'd love for you to check out, but I realized that everything you need to know and everywhere you need to go is at nickdomadio.com. That really is the hub. I list all the links in every episode just in case, but nickdomadio.com is where I put everything that I do. If you want to know more about this podcast, whether it's the audio version or the YouTube version at youtube.com slash at music is not a genre or wherever else the podcast shows up, or if you want to support the podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre just go to nickdomadio.com it's all there if you want to check out my full discography of original music and covers for my band Rec R-E-C and beyond it's at nickdomadio.com including all the streaming and social links for wherever you listen to music and wherever you check out your sosh Uh, my acting clips are there my voiceover clips are there graphic design my blog and most especially it's the best place to contact me if you go to nickdomadio.com slash contact or just hit the contact is on every single page you can send me a note say hello ask me any questions you'd like you get a newsletter a few times a month and if you have a project of your own and need work done for it whether it's audio editing or music or voiceover or graphic design or if you have an event and you need live music go to nicktomadio.com contact me say hello let me know what you need i'd love to hear from you Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. All right. We're back with Back Talk. Uh, second look at first albums with Steve Erickson. And where we left off before the commercial break was talking about Prince. And we're going to dive into this, A, because I think that he's a very worthy subject. And I think a lot of people do know, or if they don't know, they should know that there is quite a difference between the first few albums and what came later. But the reason why I'm stopping to explain this real quick is because this was a couple of years ago, probably more. The whole reason I even had this on a list of possible topics for a podcast was because a very good friend of mine who I've I had done a lot of music with and everything as shortly after Prince died, made the statement that his first few albums were kind of lame. And I don't know if that's exactly how he put it, but I think that that is anyone who knows that he put out an album before, let's say 1999 or Controversy or even Purple Rain for some people, if they know that he had albums before then, tend to believe the same thing that, oh, it must not have been that good or, or whatever. And I know I hadn't heard his stuff. The first song I ever heard from him contemporaneously was, I think, Delirious. And then it kind of went from there. And then I went back years later and listened to all the older stuff. And this is what we're getting into right now. I don't find them subpar i think that your comment that they kind of stand as about the same as his second tier 80s albums is is damn accurate yeah i was very surprised to learn that i i didn't own a copy of his second album given how long ago it came out i don't fully remember this but i think it's quite likely i never heard it all the way through until the preparations for this podcast i did buy a copy of for you around the time of his death I Want to Be Your Lover was a hit back in 1979, but after that, his popularity dipped a little bit until 1999. Both 1999 Purple Rain, if you were listening anywhere near Top 40 Radio in 83, 84, I mean, you literally heard every song from Purple Rain, and you heard a lot of Delirious and Little Red Corvette and the title track. And Dirty Mind, I don't think Dirty Mind got much radio play both because the production is quite rough and the songs like Head and Sister 
even would not be very <laughs> radio friendly. Not even today. Right, right. Although Cindy Lauper had a hit off it covering When You Were Mine. Right. And that's a song that I have been going back to a lot in, in later years as something to uh, cover. And and I do think that that does sort of there are things that came later on in his career that sound like that to a degree. And before I forget, I just looked this up because I know, again, you have uh, when you remind Cindy Lauper, you have I feel for you, Chaka Khan. Yeah, I remember that hit as being huge and didn't know at the time that that was a Prince song. And when I went back and finally listened to that album, which I think was the self-titled album, I was like, whoa. And I think. I actually like Chaka Khan's a little better. It's more actualized, but you can hear all the elements of what he was trying to do on on the original, too. Yeah, I knew at the time that Prince had written it. He wrote so many songs and other artists had hits with them. The thing about Chaka Khan's version, it's also kind of at the intersection of pop, R&B, very old school hip hop. So you get Stevie Wonder playing on it and Grandmaster Melly Mel rapping on it. One thing that, particularly with respect to Prince, you were saying how genre and gender are connected. Genre is also a really racialized concept. I went back and looked up some original reviews of the first two Prince albums, and almost all of them mentioned disco. I can vaguely hear it. I hear I hear much more. My favorite songs on the first two albums are the kind of like lush R&B slow jams. But to me, they sound more like Barry White. I, I mean, they don't actually sound like Barry White, but they're closer to that or the OJs or kind of music that influenced disco more than what disco meant by 1978 or, or 1979. And there's an awful lot of Hendrix comparisons. And to me, his guitar playing really doesn't sound anything like Hendrix. If anything, it's kind of like Eddie Van Halen without all the all the tapping on the fretboard. But like Bambi, which is the big rock song on Prince, there's a song that sounds similar on the first album. To me, they sound like L.A. hair metal. That was before that scene had really taken off, except for Van Halen. But they sound much closer to that to me than Hendrix. This is blowing my mind because, first of all, I was just about to mention the eclectic mix of genres that he had on those first albums and the two well this is what episode seven it will be two episodes before this i interviewed a guy named steve rosen who wrote a book about his relationship with eddie van halen is is he's a journalist and he had a personal and professional relationship with him and he mentioned prince because he's also written a book on prince and you're right. I mean, you can't claim that, you know, Prince started anything with any of those songs on those albums. But the fact that he was dabbling and fairly well, I mean, you know, to varying degrees of success, but I think fairly well, at least competently, if not more so at times with things like, you know, hair metal or straight up rock or, uh, of course, the R&B and then things that sounded vaguely like disco that people had to categorize as disco because he was a you know person of color or whatever else other reasons there were and also the new wave stuff that he would end up using a lot more later on especially in the 80s that was the thing that really fascinated me the most about those albums because even though there was a certain sense like i said of he was pretty darn self-actualized because he's just like this is what i want to do i'm doing all of it and i'm just going to find a way to put it all together and make it work and then would eventually make it work there was still an element of i'm going to dabble in this i'm going to dabble in that and maybe not everything will stick five years down the line but i'm going to do it as well as i can possibly do it and i do think that 
the last comment, the comparison to Hendrix did have more to do with the fact that he was a an African American guitar player rather than just a guitar player. Because you're you know right, like his his stuff does sound more like you know Eddie Van Halen without the hammer ons. Yeah. It's also interesting how quickly he seemed to learn from his mistakes. He recorded his second album barely six months after the first one. And I think Dirty Mind actually began as a collection of demos that he decided to release. He was originally planning to give those songs a much slicker treatment. I think he could see that maybe doing something to get to one of the things you were talking about, doing something that seemed less commercial would benefit his career in the long run and benefit the way that he was perceived, particularly after I Want to Be Your Lover was a hit. Most artists would crank out a song that sounds the same in hopes of having another hit. On Dirty Mind and Controversy, he went more... You can hear like the organ sound on that really sounds like Elvis Costello's the organ on this year's model. Oh, yeah. Or the way that Blondie used keyboards. Yes, those are in that kind of like post-punk new wave vein. And this is the thing that I think is something that I wanted to illustrate with this episode, which is that artists that are that exploratory and there are artists who are so famous that they're well known for only one thing or two things for them to have gotten there in a way that was so signature and unique they probably went through a lot of elements of trying things out and and really diving diving into them and those recordings shouldn't just be thrown away as well oh, well they didn't know what they wanted to do yet I think that there's a lot of value to hear in there and there really how many other artists who had even any kind of minor single or anything in the you know late 70s in America were experimenting with the mix of music that he was, which included all the stuff we mentioned. And the fact that he didn't feel limited to just, well, I, I guess I have to do R&B because that's what other precursors have done and who are African-American or who come from where I come from or whatever it is. And no, I'm going to do metal and new wave and all of that stuff is like what you said about him choosing to be less commercial in that the minute you feel like you're limiting yourself, you're also limiting how high your career can go. You're going to either be here, you know, or you'll be here and then here if you open up the gates. Well, I think it's also more common these days. You'll hear someone like Post Malone will put out an album and there'll be a different a song for every radio format. There's a degree of calculation to that, I think. But with Prince's second album, Bambi could have been promoted to rock radio. It wasn't I Want to Be Your Lover was the hit. And obviously R&B stations wouldn't have played his rock songs. It was something like Little Red Corvette or Purple Rain. He figured out how to combine all those styles in a way that would really cross every boundary where the same songs did get played on every radio format that was around. And he was also able, like when Doves Cry is a deeply eccentric song, there's no bass line, the guitar and drum machine, they seem to be really jarring rhythmically. And that was number one for like two months. And that's a great point that he found a way to combine everything. Because I've been going through this with the stuff that I've been working on for the last several years, which is I, you know, worked on a, on a sound for quite a while that eventually I was able to combine, uh, you know, all of the elements that I wanted to into something that resembled a, a sound. It's not, it, I don't like that idea of feeling limited, but it was something I wanted to really shoot for. And then after that album, the Sunshine Seminar, when I did kind of my experimental albums in 2020, it was deliberately shooting off into different genres and kind of siloing them 
to see how much I could get out of each one. And now this next album I'm working on is going to be both of those things. It's going to be kind of a pick of, well, here are some genres that are clearly distinct, but then here are songs where all of that comes together. And that to me is, that's where I like my favorite artists are ones who can do all of that. They can shift off into something, some pure genre experimentation or or do it really well and then go back to the sound that they've created where they've combined all of those things. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a really interesting project. I'm doing an album now where I'm really trying to, writing it now, where I'm really trying to challenge myself by not writing in major or minor keys and not, not using 4-4. Four, four. Wow. Theoretically, I don't think any of the music actually sounds like prog rock, but the idea of trying to avoid, it might sound like something like tubular bells, if that counts as prog rock. The actual sounds are more influenced by like gamelan music. It's music from Java that's made on tune metal, metal percussion. There's a lot of bells, but the idea was that I felt like I got bored writing songs in 4-4 in minor keys and I used every chord progression you possibly can. So if you write in like a song in five four in the Hungarian minor scale, you have to come up with something you haven't you haven't done before. Yes, I love that, and I'm looking forward to hearing that very much. So I and you know being half Hungarian, I I, I appreciate you using the scale. <laughs> but that kind of gets me to a quick tangent before we get to another artist, which is that idea of deliberately challenging yourself. The way we, you know we talk about the way Prince did, and and I would even argue the way a band like Grateful Dead did, where they were like, well, we've learned how to jam for no reason other than jamming. Let's try to turn this into something cohesive. You mentioned briefly in some notes that you uh, had sent to me uh, about how Eminem's album, first album is so different from what came after it. And I had never heard it. When I did the episode, I guess I was listening to whatever was on streaming and it's not on streaming. I think there's one song on Spotify from that album. And I finally listened through to the whole thing. And it's so interesting because the flow he has and the way he uses words is very similar, but the, what he's saying is not, is, is, is different. It's more, you know, geared toward pop and and the kind of hip hop that was happening in the mid 90s and his voice isn't quite as aggressive as it would end up becoming and i feel like there was a sense after that that was similar to prince's or to what we're talking about you know us challenging ourselves as artists and that is that if i don't try to take this to the next level i'm going to be pigeonholed as only being able to do this and deliberately shifting away from that is what ended up bringing the you know him and others to greater heights than they could have if they just stayed where they were. In Eminem's case, I think the change in sound had more to do with he was desperately poor at the time that he made that album, and it flopped. There were only a thousand copies pressed. It only came out on vinyl and cassette. It was released by a label that was an offshoot of the studio where he recorded it. He attempted suicide about a year after it came out, and it's commercial failure you know he like absolutely had to make a success as a rapper just to make a living that album went nowhere so i think he came up with this slim shady persona out of kind of of desperation but he also made music under the guise of really dark humor he started making music that was more personal or where he would even on my name is he says some really grim things about his parents he makes a joke out of it but a few particularly on the album version where he says he dreams about slitting his dad's throat but i mean paradoxically a lot of people 
find that they can express themselves more personally through a persona. I think that's what he found. I get that. I think that there's a freedom to feeling like, quote unquote, you aren't in the spotlight, but that you are hiding behind this mask that allows you to then, well, I can say whatever I want now, you know, or go wherever I want. I think it's not the full story, of course, but I think some some of the reason why David Bowie would would switch his persona now and then was to allow himself the freedom to explore different parts of himself and his music without feeling like everything he did had to represent the real David Bowie, if there is even that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. And and just the thought that those kind of personal things can also drive you know, an artist to do that is something that's like, to me, that's a whole different episode because that's fascinating. And that's something I haven't even begun to think about really. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But something that we did begin to think about, which is one of the other bands that we passed back and forth a lot of notes about other than Prince. We've mentioned several others, but the kind of the two big ones that we kept revolving around were Prince and Pink Floyd. And I'd love to hear your take on their their albums with uh, Sid Barrett. I think Piper at the Gates of Dawn is a masterpiece. One of the great psychedelic albums. To me, that they're there fully formed. The Velvet Underground's first album came out around the same time. And I think Pink Floyd said they were, even before they could hear the Velvet Underground, they read about them playing with films projected behind them, that they thought of themselves as kind of part of this larger art project. That was a big inspiration. The thing with Pink Floyd... I've heard the Gates of Dawn is so tied to Sid Barrett with him being the singer, guitarist, and main songwriter. He started becoming schizophrenic even while while in the middle of recording that album. And he plays on the second album. He only writes and sings one song, Jug Band Blues, which is really, it's a song about going insane, basically. And it sounds sonically, it matches that with a brass band that that's playing in the wrong key. Part of what I find interesting about his voice on Piper is that there's a kind of, a lot, especially in Britain, a lot of psychedelia was very whimsical. I love nature imagery, like influences from Lewis Carroll, William Blake. Like there's a song on Piper called The Gnome. There's a song about his cat. But there's also a kind of sinister quality to pretty much the entire album. What I found interesting, and I'm going to, you know, full disclosure, I've never been a huge Pink Floyd fan. I've appreciated their music. Uh, There's music from my childhood that I really will always cherish. But they're not a band who I just put an album on and and I get lost in. There's there's some there's just it's just not a connection. But when I listen through all of their catalog, I guess it's kind of ironic 
that first album, I was like, oh, my God, I love this. And even though you do hear elements of what they would become in that album, like you said, a lot of it's already there. The quality of it is more whimsical. And it's, there's something different about it to where I feel like the bands that were influenced by Piper, let's say that era, Sid Barrett, are completely different from the bands who were influenced by 70s. Pink Floyd and may not even get along, frankly, and, you know, musically speaking, at least you have bands that had that more kind of whimsy and and experimentation, especially I think, uh, you know, bands in the 90s. There's an element of that kind of singing in even a Bell and Sebastian, even though they're more straightforward in all the Elephant Six bands who kind of go off the deep end now and then, but have that whimsy to what they do. And you can't think of those kinds of bands in the same breath as bands who create that more cinematic, orchestral and lugubrious music that Pink Floyd will become known for in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall are two of the most popular albums ever released. The Wall has sold 23 million copies. Dark Side has sold 15 within the U.S., but according to one article I read, it's the fourth best-selling album in the world uh, in terms of total sales. And Wish You Were Here is also extremely popular. But that version of the band, if you listen to the music they made for about 1968 to 72, I like metal quite a bit. I think they kind of, they pretty much got back on track with that album, but that's the last time that they were particularly experimental. If you watch the Life at Pompeii film, there's a song where David Gilmour just shakes his guitar against his amp and makes feedback for several minutes. By Dark Side, they completely abandoned that. Johnny Rodden in the, in the late 70s walked around wearing an I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. They were one of the punk's big targets as far as what that rock music had become something bloated and really slick. And, you know, there was kind of a betrayal of this idea of rebellion from the 60s. John Lennon has later said he, he actually liked Pink Floyd and he wasn't being totally sincere. But I think he said that he was reacting against what they had come to represent more than their actual music. You know, a song like Money, they probably weren't wealthy when they recorded it, but there's like zero self-awareness to that. Roger Wires and John takes himself incredibly seriously. I mean, I'm not sure that Sid did. It would be hard to know what Sid did, you know, just with the st- his state of mind. Yeah. You know, like he maybe he didn't have the presence of mind to be to take himself that seriously. But it's interesting you bring up John Lydon, not just because of the T-shirt, because when you think about and there there were other kind of post-punk and punk people who had to verbally say they didn't like, you know, progressive music, but were more railing against kind of the overblownness and self-importance of it. And that had to be shot down. And I and I totally get that as much as I love a lot of progressive music as well. When I was reading Bono's book, he said that The Edge was a huge, huge fan of Yes, even though everything they did early on was super stripped down and post-punk. And when you know these things, you can hear certain there's a certain melancholy romanticism to a lot of what yes does. And you can hear that in what the edge arranges and and his guitar. There's a certain kind of space and allowance of time to unfold in what Pink Floyd did in the seventies in a similar way to a lot of what PIL did in, in the eighties. So you wonder if there was that influence there. Lightning actually did like a lot of prog rock and even admitted it in the seventies. But he tend to go to the most the most experimental bands like Magma or Vandegraaff Generator. Public Image Limited's original guitarist Keith Levine actually was a roadie for Yes when he was a teenager. I don't think Leiden or anyone else liked Yes much. Levine also said he ripped off the guitar riff to to Pills Pop Tones. 
from a Yes song. Oh, wow. That's funny. The opening line is on Metal Box refer to an albatross. The albatross flies overhead, flies overhead is the opening line, I think, of Pink Floyd's Echoes. Maybe that's a complete coincidence. Or the opening line, Metal Box, is getting rid of the albatross. So I think he was still talking about that kind of feeling like you have to get rid of what rock music had become and throw it out in order to create something new. It may be a complete coincidence. I don't know. I think if you're saying that he actually secretly liked some of what pink floyd did i think he might have been aware of that and whether it was conscious or not it you know it seeped into his influence and it was like a commentary on i think also even in mid-70s pink floyd i can hear that they were probably listening to bands like tangerine dream and Kraftwerk. wish you were here was my favorite pink floyd album from the 70s i think that's as good as piper at the gates of dawn and on shine on crazy diamond is more kind of radio friendly, but there's still a degree of like long electronic passages. It's much smoother, but there's still a kind of, if you listen to something like Interstellar Overdrive, it kind of sounds like a recording of a bad trip. That emotion is kind of present in later Pink Floyd quite a bit, even though the sonics are, they were a lot darker than most than Say Yes or Jethro Tull or the bands who would have been seen as their peers. And I think one of the things that this all illustrates is that we're poking holes in the idea that, A, the genres are so pure, which, I mean, that's what this whole show is about, and we've talked about this before, but also that even a single artist it has, has such a pureness of what they do. And hopefully what this episode has done is to illustrate that if you go back far enough into an artist's career... I think you'll appreciate what they did then, but also understand way better what came after and how they got to where they did. And that what we think of as this homogenous sound that they created came from so many different places. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think because of the fashions of the time, a lot of artists had to deny some of their roots, like we were talking about with Leiden, like in Pink Floyd, but at the same time, kind of publicly rebelling against them. I, I think that was productive at the time. I'm curious about music of the future. I think it's possible that to progress, we're going to get to something that's more restricted to one sound. Because of what I was saying before about there's a lot of music that pretends to be really open-minded, but it's actually just combining the most kind of commercial at... Post Malone is a great example of this, where he's mixing pop, rock, R&B, hip-hop. But I really get the feeling a lot of this is opportunistic, and he would probably be making much different music if he had complete control over it. Interesting. That last part... I didn't think of, but I, I will say I go in to artists albums that are touted as being that eclectic with a lot of hope because I'm, I'm looking for that in many ways. Uh, even though I like albums that stick to one sound as well, I was disappointed in post Malone's album. I, I mean, there were a couple of songs where I was like, Oh yeah, that kind of, I like that. And it comes together, but I did feel again, like we were talking about some of the other pop artists that there was a bit of a hollowness inside. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the next stage of music is probably going to be a rebellion against the present. And if the present is, you should like everything. To play devil's advocate, there's a kind of consumerist edge to that, where particularly in the media, you barely read negative reviews, especially of hugely popular artists. There's an attitude, like it would be bullying to say a Taylor Swift album is mediocre in the New York Times or The Guardian. We might see a turn towards sticking to one genre or another dimension of like, I don't know, though, the next big thing will be people who like Taylor Swift walking around wearing I hate Taylor Swift t-shirts and... (laughs) Yeah, 
That's a great point. And I think, again, this is maybe the third thing you brought up that sounds like an entirely, you know, a different episode. We could spend an hour on, on a subject like that. But we're coming up on time here. And I feel like we've covered a lot of what we wanted to. Were there, did, were there any final thoughts that you wanted to share? I would really encourage people, if, if they've only really heard like The Dark Side, uh, The Wall, Era, Pink Floyd, I would recommend uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, the compilation Relics, which is uh, tracks from their first three albums and some singles from the 60s. That's a really good overview of that period. And then there's a more extensive compilation. I think it's called Creation 1962 to 1972, which is two CDs. That's a really good overview of their singles, BBC sessions. It's all rarities from that period, or at least non-album cuts. That sounds incredible. And I would definitely recommend people check out Prince's self-titled album and Dirty Mind if they've only heard his later stuff. That's great. You took the words right out of my mouth. And I agree with those picks for sure. And I think in general, if there's an artist you like or you know really well, try to explore beyond what was just popular. Steve. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Uh, sure, it was great. This is my third, I think my third appearance on, on the podcast. Yeah, I think other than my dad, you're you're the winner here. My dad and my wife. <laughs> so you're you're like family already. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure there will be more because these conversations are excellent. Thanks again to Steve Erickson for joining me here. For those of you who like this topic, I'm doing a small bonus episode with a little more behind the scenes of some of my thoughts on how I put together this subject in particular. These bonus episodes are short but pretty valuable, and you can find them at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. I want to hear from all of you on what your opinions are in any of this, because as always, my objectives are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.